Thank you. If birds fly over the rainbow, why can't I? Because I'm booked on United Airlines. <laughs> I, I almost didn't get here. I'm very glad I did. Um, uh, but it wasn't my fault that I didn't. But anyway, that's, that's the commercial break. Um, it's very nice of you to come out in such numbers on a cold night to listen to a writer speak. There is no reason why writers should be able to do this. <laughs> and, um, and in about 45, 50 minutes, you may agree. Um, uh, in fact, this, this whole business of writers going out to meet um, interested readers um, and talk about their work and their ideas is, is relatively recent. It didn't always happen. You know, Shakespeare did no signing sessions. Um, like many, like other things, Dickens was very good at inventing things, and he invented moral. If he didn't invent, he certainly enormously popularized um, this business of, of the, the, re, the writer's tour. Um, he was good at it, but he, one of his other inventions, um, Christmas, uh, uh, you know, also, also caught on. Um, and he, um, he used to go around uh, for... Uh, quite many years doing, do, doing these tours in which he would read, he would sort of enact greatest hits from his books um, and do all the characters in, in the different voices, and, um, including the female ones. And apparently his, his performance of The Death of Little Nell was very, very popular, and his, his, his beard didn't seem to be an obstacle you know, to, to, to the subtlety of his portrayal. Um, and in fact, it's it may well, in fact, probably is the case that it contributed to his death because on his last American tour, he set himself such a grueling schedule um, that his health was affected and he went home to England not feeling at all well and he really never recovered and, and died. And so um, the moral of this story is that some writers are good at this, but it kills them. Um, uh, so here I am risking my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess uh, <laughs> I guess not for the first time. Um, uh, to talk about what it is, this business of being a writer and, and to engage with the world in which we find ourselves. And it strikes me that I mean, Dickens is a very good place to start because in his time, one of the things that the novel not only could do, but did do, um, was to bring the news. Uh, in, in that time of much less extensive communications networks, um, novels told people things about their own society and, and other societies which they otherwise wouldn't have known. I mean, when, when Nicholas Nickleby was written, um, the, its subject, these, these dreadful schools for poor children in the north of England, um, was really brought to public attention by that novel. And, and the um, people, the public's reaction to the portrayal of, of, of those schools in the form of Do the Boys Hall and Nicholas Nickleby had, had quite a lot to do with the legislation that was brought in to outlaw such schools and to actually change educational practice. Um, in American literature, probably the most dramatic example of a novel having a direct impact um, on events is, is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, 
it's, there's a story which I think is actually a true story, that when President Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, he, said, um, he said, so you're the little woman who started this big war. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a level of truth in that because that book had such an extraordinary galvanizing effect um, on public opinion in, with regard to the slavery question that it probably did have something to do with starting that big war. So it's not very often that, that works of literature have this kind of direct effect. There's, but when it does, it's, it's, um, it is, it's quite something. There's a famous story that Arthur Miller used to tell about the opening night of Death of a Salesman, um, when after the applause had died down at the end of the final curtain, he saw um, the chairman of Gimbel's department store in, in New York leaving the theater in a state of high agitation and saying to his, his, the aide who was with him, okay, so now we're not gonna fire any of those old salesmen. <laughs> uh, so these are the things literature could do. It could keep, get people's jobs saved. Um, one of the other things I think that is, that makes Dickens still such a contemporary writer apart from this, this this role of bringing the news and, uh, is, that, is that he, who's very famous for being a comic writer and also very famous for being a, a sort of real, a realistic writer of London in particular, but um, also of northern industrial parts of England, um, was in fact, a, you could say, a sort of early surrealist. Uh, I mean, there are, in, in the course of his novels, there are images which are very straightforward surrealism. I mean, the, the the case of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, bleak, bleak, you know, a legal trial that never ends, goes on through generations. It's an idea, idea which you might just as easily find in Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, the, um, the idea of the, the dust heaps in our mutual friend, the, the, the idea of a society being literally physically dwarfed by the mountains of garbage it creates. Um, is it seems to me, for instance, it would have been impossible for, for Don DeLillo to write his novel Underworld without having known uh, Underworld also has garbage heaps um, looking, at, looking out over Manhattan. But it seems quite clear that, well, maybe New York got the idea from London, but certainly that New York, certainly that, certainly that New York writer got the idea from, from an English writer. Um, and the circumlocution office, um, you know, a government department created to do exactly nothing. Um, no, I mean, actually, that is naturalistic fiction. It's a, uh, is a, um, uh, and that, the thing that makes it, it work in Dickens is certainly something that I tried to learn from, which is that these larger-than-life characters and these very surrealistic images um, work and convince us because they are rooted in a very closely observed everyday reality. So you have, you have a background, you know, Dickensian London, which, is, which could not be more accurately observed um, and is entirely, you could almost say documentary. Um, and projected onto this very realistic background is this extremely unrealistic foreground. But because the, because the, the surrealism grows out of the realism, it becomes an intensification of it, in a, a, if you like, uh, allows it to achieve the qualities of metaphor and um, makes it more powerful. That's, you know, if you're going to steal, I always thought, steal the good stuff. 
And that's certainly a thing that I've frequently tried to steal um, from Dickens. But it did occur to me that you know, people nowadays say that the novel no longer really has this old function of, of bringing the news because we get the news in so many other ways. Um, but I'm beginning to wonder if that's true because it seems to me that increasingly these enormous news media that we now have off, do offer us information, but information in an extremely packaged and even trivialized form. And there's very little, if you like, information of the heart. I mean, information that makes you understand what these other experiences these, that, that we see in news stories, what those other lives are like for the people who live them. So we know very little. We just know that you know, bombs go off um, here and there, and, and it becomes tedious. And so we turn instead to the continuing catastrophe that is Britney Spears. And, um, and uh, you know, and the, the, the transformation of Paris Hilton from a cheap hotel to a cheap person. Um, <laughs> and this is what the news is now. No. Um, and it seems to me that, therefore, it may once again be the function of literature to offer information. And I think one of the reasons why, let's say, novels like The Kite Runner are so successful is because they actually offer uh, an insight into worlds which the news does not. You know? um, so maybe it's coming full circle. And even if we're talking about Dickensian surrealism, well, this is very much an age in which the surreal constantly grows out of, bursts through the surface of the real. You know, I've, look around you. You see growing up through the cracks in the real these, these curious, grotesque, bizarre, uh, what should we call them? Bushes. Um, <laughs> um, and and we, we have to make sense of, of that. You know, it seems to me that there's, there's a much stranger phenomenon that you could find in, in, in any surrealist novel. Um, so, so it seems as if these old ideas of, of grafting the fantastic onto the real are actually mirrored by what the world is really like. And yet, it does seem as if this is a time, as was suggested in the introduction, um, when we feel that what we want is facts. You know, that, that, that it's a time in which nonfiction sells better than fiction, in which, uh, in which people seem to want uh, straightforward, non-imagined um, uh, sources of information. And indeed, there's become a tendency to believe that the novel itself is only a fact in disguise. If you, talk, if you ask a thousand novelists, what is the question they are most often asked by journalists and by readers? They will all say to you, or 999 of them, J.K. Rowling being the other one, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, will say to you, the, the question is, how autobiographical is it? 
That's what everybody except J.K. Rowling is asked, right? Because I guess she's not a schoolboy with a scar on her forehead um, fighting with the Dark Lord. Um, or not yet. Um, <laughs> anyway, how autobiographical is it? This is, this is what you're repeatedly asked. And I can tell you there is a right and a wrong answer to this question. Um, the wrong answer is, well, it's not really autobiographical, or I suppose it is a little bit, and, but then there's other stuff that I just made up, and then there were things that happened to other people, and I just changed them around a little bit, and I joined them all together, and, uh, you know, it's fiction. Um, now, this, this answer has the merit of being true, but is the wrong answer. Um, the right answer is, it's completely autobiographical. <laughs> uh, everything in this book happened either to me or to close friends or family members. Uh, at this point, the journalist will look impressed. What an amazing life you've had. You know? um, and, and, we'll, and we'll then ask the next question. Um, otherwise, it's not, it doesn't satisfy people. It doesn't satisfy people to say that you make things up. Um, I mean, I remember at the height of the, the fuss over the satanic verses, somebody, one of the people who was attacking the book, accused me of hiding behind my fiction, you know, as if it were a fig leaf. You know? um, and the same person, actually, uh, proved that his level of self-knowledge was very high because when he was asked... Um, further questions about my writing, he said rather disarmingly and sweetly to the television camera, he said, you know, books are not my thing. <laughs> and I often felt that that was probably the best description of the battle over that book, that it was a battle between people for whom books were not their thing and people for whom, you know, they were. Um, another way of describing that whole conflict is... Uh, is that it was a battle between people who had a sense of humor and people who did not. You know, it was a, a kind of battle over the joke, you know, humor being what gets furthest up people's noses. Um, anyway, how autobiographical is it? This, the demand that fiction should be autobiographical in some way begins to make people believe very strange things. It, may, it begins to make people believe that, you know, Vladimir Nabokov must have been a pedophile. You know, otherwise, how could he have written Lolita? Um, it makes them believe that Marcel Proust must have been heterosexual. <laughs> um, because his character is. Marcel in, the, in A La Recherche is heterosexual, and therefore, of course, it follows that so was his author. Um, I have had some strange run-ins with this. I mean, the, wh one of the side effects of the autobiography obsession is that if your book has even the most modest level of success, people will want to be in it, uh, including people you don't know. Um, and I, when Midnight's Children first came out in, in 1981, I was in India uh, at an event not unlike this, only with Indian people. Um, <laughs> Uh, and a, a lady came up to me at the end of the thing, uh, about my age, very grand, with jewels, etc., and, and with a fan. 
and, and with the fan, she smacked me. You know, she went, you know, whack. She said, naughty boy. I said, excuse me? <laughs> and she said, you know, I, I know that you based you know, such and such character in Midnight's Children on me. Uh, but it's okay, I forgive you. See? And I said, madam, you must understand that this is the first time we've ever met. <laughs> and she said, I don't know why you're going on about it. I've already forgiven you. Uh, uh, so, uh, this happens. And in a novel I wrote much later called, called Fury, which is a novel mostly set in New York, I was repeatedly asked if the main character was me because the main character was a person of my age, um, of Indian origin, who had moved to New York. Um, we were the only two people who had done this. <laughs> and so it was obvious that we were, in fact, the same person. Um, and I pointed out that the character in the novel um, had been sexually abused as a child, dressed up in girls' clothing, been very, very badly treated, um, had developed a rage which he was unable to control and which he was afraid of, had almost murdered his sleeping wife and young child with a kitchen knife. And, and I said, you're asking me if that's autobiographical? <laughs> uh, and they said, well, yes. And so I had to say, just for the record, no, it's not. <laughs> but that didn't convince them. Uh, so it, it, all of this stuff has made me want to insist in gatherings like this on the fictionality of fiction and, and to try and break this habit of looking at fiction in terms of how much of the writer's life it contains, um, which, in, which more and more seems to me like a not very useful way of reading books. Um, because in the end, James Joyce is not Stephen Dedalus, even if they do go to the same school. Um, and, and Marcel is not Proust, and Nabokov is not Humbert Humbert. Um, and one recent example of this, this obsession came with, in the, the biography that was published a couple of years ago of Saul Bellow, um, James Atlas's biography. And um, in one part, there's a chapter which deals with the period when Bellow was writing the novel Herzog. Um, and Atlas tells us a great deal about the circumstances of Bellow's private life at this time and shows you that there are very close similarities between much of the central plot of Herzog and what had just happened to Bellow, whose wife had also run off with a good friend of his, just as Herzog's wife um, has. Uh, the difference is that in, in the novel, the, the, the absconding friend um, only has one leg. In real life, the friend had two. Um, this is what we writers call revenge. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but really, the thing is that you, you, know, you can read in, in, the, in the biography 60 or 70 pages, which goes into the great details of, of, of Bellow's life, out of which, allegedly, Herzog came. And at the end of it, it doesn't tell you anything interesting about the book at all. Uh, that the experience of reading the book is in really in no way enriched by knowing this. Um, it's, just, um, it's just gossip. You know? and, and I think it, this is a gossip-addicted culture. And 
gossip about writers is beginning to replace the art of reading. And so, um, so I'm just trying to, to encourage you, I know pathetically and uselessly, not to do this. Um, because, of course, there is, a, there is a serious way in which a writer's life experience does affect their work. Um, and it would be foolish not to say so. It's just not nearly as direct as is often supposed. I mean, I, for example, Midnight's Children is a novel that has its origin in a family joke. In my family, my parents used to say to their friends that I was born in June 1947, and eight weeks later, the British ran away. <laughs> and it was always said as if to suggest that there was some cause and effect connection between these events. And this is one of those jokes that is not, I mean, how funny is it? You know, <laughs> and, and even if it's, you know, a tiny bit funny, the, the first 25 times you hear it, um, the next 975 times you hear it, it's less funny. And so I remember, I mean, in a way I remembered the joke because of being so annoyed by it as a small child. Um, and yet, I suppose, in a way, I should be grateful to it, because much later, it, it, it occurred to me that there doesn't have to be the eight-week gap, you know, that, that the, the child can be born at the moment that the British run away. Um, and that gave me, you know, gave me a novel, or it gave me the, the, the idea of a novel. So that's a, there's a, you know, there you are, a PhD thesis for somebody. Uh, <laughs> uh, family jokes and uh, magic realist fiction. Um, with special reference to the origins of Midnight's Children. Um, and I want, you know, credit. <laughs> um, in other ways, also, the way the world in which you grow up and the immediate circumstances in which you grow up obviously has a lot to do with the way in which you come to see the world. I mean, one of the things that happened at that moment, eight weeks after I was born, um, was not just the, the British left, but the... Uh, but that the so-called partition took place, which led to the creation of the independent states of India and Pakistan. And the partition was a very strange event. On the one hand, it was optimistic because it was the end of colonial rule in the subcontinent. On the other hand, it was unbelievably bloodthirsty. Um, and these countries were born in blood, you know, massacres, in, 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 of which the numbers really are not known. I mean, people talk about half a million people but it was uh, being killed, but it was almost certainly much more than that. It may well have been well over a million uh, people who were killed in those riots and massacres. And if your earliest experience, long before you can remember it, but the thing that happened when you were born is a thing of that nature and that scale, it can't help but affect what you think about all kinds of things, nation, borders, frontiers, um, divisions, walls. Um, my family, like many Indian Muslim families, was cut down the middle by the partition. Um, and more or less exactly 50-50. You know, my, my own parents were not religious. This was their greatest gift to me. Um, I was excused religion. Um, and, um, you know, so it's their fault. Um, but they certainly didn't want to go and live in a religious state, so they 
were amongst the very large number of Muslims who stayed in India. Um, other members of my, I mean, my, my mother has had four brothers and sisters, and two of them went and two of them stayed. And so all the way through my childhood, there was this very contested frontier driven straight through the middle of my family life. And that's the thing which sticks in your head, you know, and, uh, and shapes the way in which you see um, the world. Another thing that I got from, from the circumstance, those circumstances was, was that you know, religion was an obvious and inevitable and inescapable part of the subject in a country where, whether or not my family were religious, certainly everyone else was. And so if you were going to, to write about the history of that place and the, and the way in which people lived in that place and how their lives were shaped, you had to take on the subject of religion. I remember, for instance, reading a, a I hesitate to call it a scholarly paper, but anyway, a paper um, about 20 years ago written by a, a scholar in India who had decided for reasons which seem to me insane um, to count the total number of gods in India. I mean, I mean, not just the big superstar, you know, above the title Tom Cruise deities, you know, not just that, but, but, but all the kind of little local godlets, the little, little deities of, 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 of river and woodland grove and, and uh, field and, and, and the home and so on. And, and this gentleman and his dedicated team had set out to enumerate the Godhead, and had come up with a figure for which there is, like, I mean, I just offer it to you, there is no way of saying how true or not it is. Um, it's a magic realist figure of 300 million gods. That was their view. Um, Maybe a slight exaggeration, but on the other hand, in my view, everything about India that you think is an exaggeration turns out to be an understatement. Um, so, um, so it's probably roughly speaking, okay, so 300 million gods in a country of one billion people. That's one god per 3.3 human beings. You know, that's a, that's one, that's a lot of gods. You know, that's a, that's a, I don't know, it's like going to private school. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a very small classes, you know. Uh, um, and it, it's, it's even stranger, because if you think about it, the, the divine population is presumably reasonably stable, you know, not increasing, because divine birth control is presumably better than <laughs> the, the, the humankind, which in India certainly isn't very effective at all. So, so you have a stable divine population and a rapidly expanding human population. Now, what you do is you project that curve backwards. You discover that, for instance, when I was at, at school in Bombay, the figure we were taught, this is just in the, in the late 1950s, the figure we were taught for the population of India then was half what it now is, 500 million we were taught. Now it's over a billion. So in just 50 years, the population has gone from 500 to a billion, it's doubled. Now push that curve further back and you realize it was probably only in about the 1930s or early 40s that for the first time, the human population of India exceeded the divine population. <laughs> and, and you begin to ask yourself, what are the consequences of this for literature? If you, live in, if, if, you, if you live in a country in which there are more supernatural beings than flesh and blood ones, you know, who's haunting who? <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
Um, you can see how this leads one away from um, kitchen sink realism as a writer. You know. And, and that has, that's what it did to me. Um, the way I grew up gave me an enormous, well, it has a lot to do with, the, with, with my use of language because for a start, um, almost everyone in, in India speaks more than one language. I mean, you kind of have to um, because otherwise you, you, don't, you can't really make yourself understood well enough. I mean, in Bombay alone, where I grew up, there's Hindi, which is like the national language. There's Urdu, which is my mother tongue. There was Gujarati and Marathi, which were the major regional languages. And there was English, which was the language of education for people like me who went to private schools. And so that's five. Then there were plenty of others, because the city is a magnet for immigrant, for workers all over the country migrating there to find work. But at least five. And if you speak several languages, even to sort of some slight degree of proficiency, a very strange thing starts happening to the way in which you use language, which is, which is that you, you, you don't speak one language. You speak a jumble of all of them. Um, and certainly in our house, it was completely commonplace for a sentence to begin in one language and visit another one and finish up in a third one. Um, you used the words that seemed most useful. Um, from which, in whichever language. I mean, Punjabi, for example, not spoken in our house, is a very good language to swear in. <laughs> you know, it has a rich and almost unrivaled vocabulary. Of, um, um, theory of Punjabi is in the room. They would probably confirm this. Um, but it would be obscene to hear them confirm it. So we should, they, probably, <laughs> but they probably should not. Um, anyway, sorry, Punjab. Um, the point about this is it, it makes your relationship to language playful. And not, not just for writers, for everyone. Um, people play with the languages at their disposal in a way which creates, well, certainly in Bombay, creates a very particular argo, very particular slang, um, Bombaya, which doesn't exist anywhere else in India. And, is, and people from other parts of India visiting Bombay often react to it with strange looks. Um, but we like it. Um, once you've been brought up in that environment, it makes you, I think, continue to wish to play, um, even though you then have to sort of dis disappointingly actually do it inside just one language. Because if you, if you write books the way people speak in Bombay, then they're not written in any language at all. And that has consequences for your income. Um, uh, I mean, one could go on down this, what autobiography gives you. For instance, one of the great things that I learned from growing up in India was, or, was the power of oral narration. You know, this is still a country in which there are large numbers of people who don't read and write, and certainly very large numbers of people who don't read and write literary novels. Um, and the oral storyteller still has a kind of uh, currency which, which uh, he has long lost in the West. And if you were, particularly in South India, in Kerala, for example, there's oral storytellers who are so powerful that politicians try and draft them in at election campaigns uh, because they can actually affect the voting patterns. Um, I've been to listen, to listen to them, and what you, you see in their performance is the exact opposite of what is believed in the classical tradition of the novel to be good form. 
Um, that's to say that that's probably best summed up in the famous advice of the caterpillar to Alice in Wonderland, when Alice is uncertain how to tell her story, and the caterpillar says, start at the beginning, go on until you reach the end, and then stop. Um, this, this is what we call classical form in the novel, right? Um, and this is the exact opposite of what the Indian oral storyteller does. Um, what happens in, in, in these performances is that the storyteller will take as his story usually some, some anecdote from Indian mythology. And no sooner has he begun it than he will connect it to some recent political event. And then he will connect it to anecdotes from his per personal life. Then he'll tell a few jokes. Then he'll sing a little song. Um, then he'll do a little dance. And all of this stuff just gets shuffled together. And this is the exact opposite of the caterpillar's view of the world, which shows you that caterpillars only know so much. Um, and it ought to be uh, difficult to listen to stories told like this, but instead, it's the opposite. It's more fun. And, and it struck me when watching these the storytellers work, supposing one saw this as not random, but supposing one saw it, in fact, as a form that had evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years precisely because it was the best way of keeping people listening. Not because it was difficult, but because it was easier. Not because it was off-putting, but because it was more attractive. Um, to have stories told in this gymnastic, sort of juggling um, way, where the, all kinds of balls of story are thrown in the air, and part of the pleasure is expecting the storyteller to drop them, but he never does. You know? um, so the performative elements of story, it seemed seem as if they actually assisted people to remain attentive and listening. Because, of course, the oral storyteller always knows when he's lost his audience, because the audience gets up and walks away. You know, or else it, or, or throws things, you know, and, and neither is good. And, and so it seemed to me that here was a lesson to be learned, that in fact, the most enjoyable way of, of experiencing a story had something to do with this juggling thing. Um, and, and that allowed me to go away and try and find a written down version of it, you know, which I would never have thought of, except for having been a person who grew up and lived in India at that time. And it's made me feel ever since that we are, you know, in our absolute core, we are a storytelling animal. Uh, we, are, we are the only creature on the earth that tells itself stories in order to understand itself. Um, and, and that means that the story is not just a thing that writers do, it's a thing we all do. Um, and is very close to the heart of, the, of, of human nature. I mean, if you, if you think about families, for example, all families have family stories about, you know, a mad great aunt or a wicked uncle or a stupid cousin. Or, and there's sometimes there's nice stories too. Um, and knowing these stories is what shows that you're a member of the family. And when somebody enters a family, if a child is born or somebody marries into the family, gradually they are told the stories of the family, um, including at the end the kind of embarrassing, shameful ones. 
And when they know those stories, then they belong. So, fam so story becomes a part of the thing that creates family. And you can take that outside family into community. You know, we, uh, the communities have stories about themselves. You know, nation, that's a story, you know, um, and, and uh, is a thing which comes with all kinds of uh, narrative material, which if you belong to that nation, you absorb and know, and it becomes a part of what you think about that, about that family that you're in. So from those Indian origins of watching oral storytellers narrate, it allowed me to come to a position of thinking that the reason why the, 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 the telling of stories needs to be untrammeled and not, not caged in is because it is closely related to our nature as human beings. It's not because writers should have the right to be rude about people, although they should. Um, and it's because if you stop the storytelling animal from telling itself the stories of itself, you deform its essential nature. Um, and that became, and has remained, really very close to the center of my ideas about, about literature. And of course, one of the things that the, the, the matter of the satanic verses dramatized uh, was that it was essentially an argument about who should have power over these stories, um, in this case, religious stories. Um, and it seemed to me the answer was perfectly obvious. I mean, obviously, we all have power over them because the stories belong to me as well as to you, and, and I have the ability to think about them and rethink them and retell them and like them or not like them and disagree with them and make fun of them, whatever I want. You know, they're my stories too. That was my position. There were other people who had a different position, and that led to a little altercation, which we don't need to go into too much. But it, but it seems to me that the point about that, you know, uh, the, beyond all the threats and menaces and, uh, you know, marches and explosions, is that what it was really about was this, this question of whether we have the right to control the narratives inside which we live, or whether, in fact, other people, priests, politicians, whoever it may be, you know, it could be Chairman Mao or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Adolf Hitler or anyone, uh, if, if, if we concede control of our stories to these other forces, then it, that's a definition of unfreedom. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a way of living in a society that is no longer free. And it's one of the reasons why politicians or people of power who seek to do this to a story often run into, well, often find themselves in conflict with imaginative artists. Um, because if you can re rewrite your story, then you can renew your culture. And if you can't, then you can't. Um, and in, in this age, there's a, a further reason for doing this, which is that an idea which has been at the bedrock of the way in which we understand our narratives it is, is now perhaps a little less true than it used to be. And this is the idea expressed by Heraclitus a couple of thousand years ago, more than, when, when he said that character is destiny, that a man's character, well, actually what he said is that a man's ethos is his daimon, his, a, man's, a man's 
way of being in the world is the principle that will guide his fate, and of which character is destiny is a pithier version. Um, we've always believed this, that the way in which the, the kinds of people we are will shape the lives we have. And it is a concept which is absolutely at the bedrock heart of the novel, um, and not just the novel. You know, it occurs to me, when, when Charles Schultz decided to stop drawing the Peanuts comic strip, in the brief interregnum before he actually stopped drawing it, the Peanuts website had a very, very large number of hits of people all asking him just once before the strip ended to allow a certain thing to happen. <laughs> and the certain thing, of course, was to allow Charlie Brown to kick the football. Right? And, and he quite correctly did not. Because if Charlie Brown kicks the football, he stops being Charlie Brown. Um, if Lucy stops whipping the football away at the last minute, she stops being Lucy. You know, their characters are their destiny. They have to be those things because that's who they are. He is not free to change them anymore. You know, he is free to create the character, but he's not free to unmake the character. Um, so this is, you know, whether it's Charlie Brown or Captain Ahab, this is the idea at the foundation of storytelling. Character is destiny. Uh, but now, oh, how should I put it? To, uh, the, in the immortal words of Popeye the Sailor Man, you know, I am what I am, and that's what I am. <laughs> right. uh, this is what we've all thought. But, of course, there are, it's not entirely true. It never has been entirely true. There's always been, for example, the, the factor of chance. I mean, the, you know, the random does intrude into human lives and reshape them um, in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, Peter Parker did not look for the spider to bite him. It was an accident and changed his life. Actually, the whole, whole of Hollywood would cease to exist without, without chance. So they know about that. And the other thing that intervenes is history. Um, and this is the point I'm making, that it intervenes nowadays more than ever before. And sometimes history is our destiny and not, and not character. And that changes the way in which we have to think about ourselves and about how we tell ourselves the story of ourselves. You know, to to make, take the biggest and most obvious of, uh, example, the career of Jane Austen was exactly contemporary with the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and yet, there's essentially no mention of the Napoleonic Wars in the novels of Jane Austen. Um, British soldiers do turn up, but their, their function is to wear red uniforms and look cute at parties. Um, and this is, I mean, an important function, I concede. Um, um, but the, the, the subsidiary function of defeating Napoleon Bonaparte uh, doesn't make it into her work. And the reason for that, I mean, I don't say this in the spirit of criticism, because the, the reason for this is that she, the people she's writing about, lead lives which she can wholly examine and completely reveal without referring to the public sphere, because the public sphere is so distant from those lives that it has essentially no effect, no impact on, on them. And so she doesn't need to include history in her stories. Um, it would be a redundant thing. Now, unfortunately, the gap between 
public life and private life has become much, much smaller. And it would be very difficult for a contemporary Jane Austen to do the same thing. I mean, she would find that all kinds of factors um, outside the control of her characters did impinge on their daily lives. You know, the declarations of war would, would affect them in a way that they didn't in those days. And so would, I don't know, currency fluctuations. You're supposing you lived in a third world country with a weak economy. Um, sorry, supposing you lived in the United States <laughs> and somebody made a run on your currency and it collapsed and you lost, and lots of people lost their jobs. That would have nothing to do with what kind of people they were. Um, and yet it would reshape their lives. Um, I mean, to put it at its, at its most tragic, when those planes attacked those buildings uh, and killed those thousands of people, their characters were not their destinies. It didn't matter whether they were good people or bad people, good at their jobs or nice parents or, you know, whatever they were like as human beings was irrelevant at that moment. And so it's made me think that one of the things we really have to do about these stories in which we live is now find a way to recognize this fact that the kind of people we are as individuals no longer is, is very often no longer the determining factor in the kind of lives we lead. And the implications of that for the novel are very profound because the novel is the form which insists on the human scale. At the center of the novel, there must be human figures, and the novel must be of the same size as them. You know, if it becomes gigantic and loses a si the size, I mean, even the most gigantic novels, you know, War and Peace, never the tale of Genji, you know, they never lose, they never lose the human scale. The, the single human individual is at the heart of them all. And what do you do then if that person moving through his or her story can no longer be fully explained by the things that he or she does and that happen to her and that, uh, that he or she thinks and is. It's this intrusion of the public sphere into private life is, in my view, going to transform the way in which we think about ourselves as individuals and about ourselves in stories and as artists. So that's something I didn't learn from my early autobiography, but I think is the thing we are all learning from our current biographies. Um, and to do this, to do this act of reimagining requires or has historically always required artists to take certain kinds of risks which, which can become physical risks. Um, and there's, one doesn't need to rehearse the long history of writers and artists who have been persecuted for their innovations. Um, I remember thinking that a very good crystallization of this was in a novel of Saul Bellows, who I mentioned before, um, called The Dean's December. Um, so it's a novel about a, a, a university dean from Chicago uh, called Albert Cord, who has who's married to a Romanian scientist. And at, at one point in the novel, they have to go to Romania for her reasons of her family. And so they're in, they're in uh, Bucharest, and it's winter. And this is Ceausescu's Romania, so it's uh, the bad old days, and it's very bleak. Um, the weather is bleak, and so is everything else. And 
And there's a moment at which the dean is standing, the American dean is standing at a window of his wife's family's apartment, looking out at a, a park at night. And he hears in the distance the barking of a dog. Um, and the dog begins to bark more and more insistently, louder and louder, and goes on and on and on, won't stop. And because it's a dog in a Saul Bellow novel, it needs to be understood. Um, and so the dean begins to hypothesize what the dog might be saying. And, and he decides rather beautifully that the dog's barking is a protest against the limitations of dog experience. <laughs> uh, and, and that what the dog is trying to say in its inarticulate way is, for God's sake, open the universe a little more. And it's a very, very beautiful sentence, I think, and, and an absolutely kind of Saul Bellow sentence. Um, but when I read it, it, it made me think that this was not such a bad description of what the work of art tries to do, um, to open the universe a little more. And, and this is not simply literature. This, is, this is, applies, I think, to all the arts, um, that what you try to do according to your talents is to... By some, by some small degree, increase the sum total of what it's possible to, to know and to think and to understand and believe and to be. Um, and the greater the work of art, the more it does that. And to do this, you, 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 you can't sit in the safe middle ground. You can't increase the frontiers by sitting in the middle of the room. Now, in order to push outwards those frontiers to open the universe, it's necessary to go to the edge and push. Um, otherwise, nothing happens. And this is risky business because, of course, as we know from the world in which we live, there are many people of power who do not wish the universe to be opened, who do not wish the people um, in their control partially or totally, to acquire new thoughts or new ways of looking at the world. Um, they don't wish horizons to be broadened. They, in fact, wish them to be narrowed. And so when artists go to those borders, borderlands and begin to push outwards, there are quite often quite you know, powerful forces pushing back. Um, and this could become dangerous for the artists. You know, it was dangerous for Ovid. It was dangerous for Voltaire. It was. Uh, Voltaire used to say that um, the artist, the writer, should always live near an international frontier uh, because if he got in trouble, he could just skip across it. Um, and th that was all well and good in the 18th century, but it doesn't work anymore, you know, because they come after you. Um, anyway, so this, I th it seemed to me, this image of trying to open the, the universe and having forces pushing back against you was, to my mind, and remains a very good description of not just the value but the necessity of art. And, and even though it's, as I say, can be dangerous, um, it's the job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
I think we um, I think I think we have time for some questions, but it would be good to be able to see you. So is it possible to bring up the house lights at all? So otherwise, you know, voices in the dark. That's, all right, that's better. I still can't see you really. But, um, and I don't. There's no microphones, are there? So. It's really difficult, actually. I'm going to have to have the lights up much more, otherwise I won't be able to see who's got hands stuck up. Um, at all. All right, this is better. I just feel like a, feel like a polar explorer. Um, is there anybody out there? Uh, um, if you would like to ask a question, you should stick up your hand and then... Oh, somebody over here. Yes, sir. I think you may just have to shout, and if people can't hear, I'll repeat it. Oh, oh, there is. All right, there it is. All right, good, good. Technology. understand the motivation for his argument, but it strikes me that if we in fact claim that religion is false and that we need to eradicate it and that the struggle to do so might come quite quickly, um, it's not clear to me that artists survive. And um, if you could respond to that. Yeah, well, um First of all, I think you don't fully represent his argument accurately. I mean, I think it's one thing to say that religion is false, which if by that you mean that the things that religion claims are not true, then I would agree, I would think that they are false. You know, the world was not created in six days by somebody who rested on the seventh, I mean, etc. Um, that is not the same thing as saying it should be eradicated. That's to say, if you choose to believe that the earth is flat, that is your prerogative. You will discover it difficult to find the edge. Um, but if you wish to believe it, that's fine. Um, the reason it's not a fatwa, the reason it's not comparable to an act of terrorist violence is because to say that religion is not true does not carry with it any armies, troops, or acts of violence. Um, it's a statement of an idea which, in, I mean, Hitchens's case, is rather wittily argued through. Um, I also believe that God is not great. You know, and um, as I said, I'm very happy to not be uh, burdened with religious belief. It doesn't mean that I seek to eradicate it in all other people. You know, I mean, it's a, uh, I would prefer it if, all, if other people eradicated it in themselves but I am prepared to allow them the freedom to be wrong. <laughs> um, 
this is not always the view of religious people. They do not always allow others the freedom to be wrong. And that's, I think, the difference when you say, when you compare it to the fatwa, it's not, it's not morally equivalent. Thank you. Next. I just wondered if uh, I could Sorry, go where back are you? to your... I can't see you. Um, Oh, there you are. Okay, yeah. yeah. To, the, to, to the issue of the Dickensian novel, um, it strikes me that um, novelists of, of South Asian descent, in particular, are keeping seem to be keeping that tradition up. If we, uh, the past fifteen years, if we look at a fine balance or a suitable boy, or even sacred games in the last year, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that uh, tradition seems to. Uh, have continued with South Asian novelists in English. It, is that, do you think that's true, and if so, why? I think it probably is true, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like what's happened in, in the Indian novel, or the South Asian novel, if we include Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh also, is that now that it's become quite a flourishing form, the Indian uh, novel in English, um, it, of course, is no longer of one sort. So, I mean, the novels that you mention are indeed, I mean, one could quite straightforwardly say that they were Dickensian, you know, in, 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 their, um, in their type. But there are also now writers who, in India, Pakistan, who are not like that at all, you know, who are much more elusive and indirect, and if you like, um, I mean, almost Japanese, some of them, you know. Um, and if I read a writer like, for example, Amit Chaudhry, it, it, makes me, it makes me think of a quite different tradition, quite different uh, literary tradition. And that's good. It's good that, the, that what's happening there is a diversification out of, um, you know, not just loose baggy monsters, to, you know, to use Henry James's phrase. Um, it's also tr it's true in much of the world, in fact, that the novel is still used in that Dickensian way, and it's true in a lot of Latin American literature. Um, over the last 50 years. Uh, if you look at, uh, for example, Mario Vargas Llosa's novel, The War of the End of the World, um, is a novel of that sort, a uh, very good novel of that sort. Um, why? I mean, it's, you know, the truth is it's been true, and it, it also continues to be a very living aspect of American literature. Um, if you look at, um, I don't know, John Irving, for example, to name only one. Um, I mean, that's a writer who, who openly talks about the influence of Dickens on his work. Um, it's, a, it's hard to do. You know, these are really... It, to, to, you have to bite off a big piece of the world to write a novel like that. And um, not all of us are Charles Dickens, unfortunately, who seem to be able to do it at the weekend, you know, and, and, then, and then write three other books in the weekdays and edit magazines and go on lecture tours and have affairs and so on. I mean, I, you know, um, it's, uh, it's difficult to know. I mean, it's one of the things that is remarkable about both Dickens and Shakespeare is, is how did they fit it all into the day, you know? Um, I think one of the reasons there aren't more of those novels is that, is that, it, is that there aren't that many people who can fit it all into the day. But I do agree that there is a healthy tradition in South India of that kind of writing, South Asia. Over here. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. Where's the mic? The mic is over here, to your right. Over here. 
Ah, oh yes, all right, yes, you're a shadow, dim leaf is visible, yes, all right. (laughs) My question has to do with writers of novels as well as writers of film. It seems like film has taken on a a function similar to the novel in terms of trying to encapsulate the human experience in a way that's digestible for others. Um, Can you talk about the relationship and like the characterization of novels and what their form used, used to be in is still and the relationship of film in that purpose. Well, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you that, that film at its best is, uh, can be genuinely novelistic. And I think that was true of, uh, for instance, a lot of the cinema of the French New Wave. I think it was true of the films of Francois Truffaut, for example. Um, and, and, and of Ingmar Bergman in, in Sweden and of Satyajit Ray in India and so on. I think these are, uh, you see those films there as deeply fulfilling as any literary experience and indeed had an enormous effect on me when I was young um, and seeing those films. Uh, it, is, it is kind of in these impoverished times, uh, you know, when the new movie is some kind of, you know, outdumbing the one the week before. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's strange to remember the days when the new movies were those movies which we now think of as the classics, you know, when the new Fellini was followed by the new Goddard, which was followed by the new Ray, which was followed by the new Bergman, which was, you know, and you were going to the movies to watch these as this week's new movie. It was an exhilarating time, and it had a great effect on me. And I do think that at its best, um, I mean, one example of movies that actually were better than the novels on which they were based is the Godfather movies, um, where, where quite clearly the, the Coppola's film language uh, was far more sophisticated and subtle than, than Mario Puzo's English language. Um, and he took what was best in the book and turned it into something much greater. I mean, I actually think that's true of the Lord of the Rings movies. I think the movies are better than the books. Uh, because the, there's a, a style of the filmmaking which is, which is more interesting than the language style of the books. Um, I feel about the novel right now that it seems to be going through a slightly cautious phase. Um, this may just be that I'm getting old, you know, and don't get it. But, but um, it seems to me that what happened in in American literature in the immediate, in the two or three decades after the Second World War, was an incredible, incredible outburst of genius, which is very, it's very hard to see it happening again anytime soon. You know, when, when you had writing at their peak simultaneously, these writers who we're all now saying goodbye to, um, you know, Bellow, Styron, Roth, Mailer, Malamud, Didion, uh, Sontag, etc., 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 etc. It was an extra, you know, extraordinary period, I think, in American literature. Um, and the present generation, while I think there are many wonderful writers in it, doesn't seem to have attempted quite those uh, things that are quite as ambitious as that. And I think that's true in uh, in literatures elsewhere in the world as well. So this may just be a cyclical thing. I mean, sometimes when after a generation in which literature has seemed to wish to be 
all-inclusive uh, and to, as I said, to bite off very big chunks of the world. There's a reaction against that by a next generation that thinks that they want to do something cleaner and simpler and purer um, than that. And then there's a reaction against that and you know, so on. I mean, that's the, this is the history of literature. But I do think that right now, it is a quieter, smaller moment than it used to be when I was uh, getting going. You know? um, and of course, my inclination is those louder, noisier books, and so I hope they come back soon. You know? But that's just a question of taste. I mean, the great thing about bookstores is that there are books of all sorts in there, and so you don't have to read the ones you don't like. I mean, this is one of the things that I keep pointing. It's quite easy not to be offended by a book. You know? You just have to not read it. Yeah, anyone else? One over here. Why did you write Satanic Verses? Oh, gosh. How long have you, <laughs> how long have you got? Um, well, it was the idea I had at the time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably the most truthful um, answer. It's the thing that was eating away at me. And of course, the thing about that book um, is that the book in the minds of people who haven't read it is a rather different animal to, to the book that is actually exists on the page because, in fact, very little of it is about Islam. You know, I mean, actually, it, it's not primarily about that. There's the total number of, I mean, the so-called, you know, the, the, the passages about which the fuss was are two chapters of about 40 pages each in a novel of 650 pages. Um, and it's one of the strange things that happened to that book, that it was so uh, oddly re-described as a book that it wasn't. Um, what I wanted to do, with the reason, the reason to answer your question, is that I wanted to write a novel about migration, and that's really what it is. It's a novel about people who, like me, had made the act of migration from the Indian subcontinent to England um, during the period which one can now call high Thatcherism, you know, the, the, 19, the, the 1980s. Um, and that's what it mostly is. It's mostly a novel about people from India ending up in England and what kind of lives they have. Um, and the idea behind it is that when one performs such an act of, of uprooting and migration, um, it has a very profound questioning consequence on everything you otherwise take for granted. Um, you lose uh, the linguistic context in which you, uh, in which you originally lived. You, you lose the cultural context. Um, Everything changes, and so the migrant has to always answer, ask and answer questions about adaptation, questions about what to, what to accept from the new world to which he has come and what to hold on to of the world from which he has come, you know, how to change, how not to change. Um, these are profound and difficult questions, and, and one of the areas which is of course brought into question is the whole, er the whole area of belief systems uh, because you come into a world where people believe something else um, and there is a, an, an encounter between not just belief and unbelief but also between belief and other belief. 
Um, and that creates tensions inside the individual which have to be worked through. And so I thought, well, if that's what I think ha is happening, then I think the novel itself should in some way be that act of radical questioning, that the, no the novel in its form and in its narrative and story should undertake that act of questioning, which I'm saying the people involved have to undergo. You know? And so that's what it's about. It's about people whose lives have been brought into question. And one of the things that is, one of those aspects is the religious aspect, but it's only one. Anyway, that's, why, that's why I thought I was doing it. Um, and uh, you know, if I wanted to insult people, I could do it much faster. <laughs> I mean, it, does, it doesn't take me five and a half years at 650 pages um, to really piss people off. You know, I mean, you know it's, uh, it's not that hard. Um, so, so that wasn't very high on my list of what I thought I was doing, which I detect as the under-question to your question. <laughs> Call me paranoid. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. Mm. What would you say is the function of reading that which offends purposely? Say that again. <laughs> say it into the microphone. Oh, okay. What would you say is the purpose of reading that which offends? Oh, just to find out how other people think. You know, I mean, I think um, clearly, I mean, I'm somebody who studied history, not literature. So one of the things texts that if you're studying the history of Europe in the middle of the 20th century, you do find yourself up against Mein Kampf, for example. And, and uh, you have to read it. If you want to know something about what went on inside the mind of Adolf Hitler, I mean, it's a rotten book. You know? And actually, one of the most painful things about it is not the ideas it expresses, but the language it expresses them in which makes you think, what, this is all there was to him? You know, that he was this crude? Because, you know, language is character. And, and if somebody's thoughts are deeply crude in the way in which they're expressed, it has something to do with who they are as people. So it's information, you know, it's information. I don't have to like everything I read. I mean, I don't have to agree with every opinion that I hear expressed. You know, so earlier question, questioner was asking about Christopher Hitchens, and it's true that he's a very good friend of mine, but it doesn't mean I agree with everything he says. In fact, you know, I don't agree with a lot of things he says. Uh, doesn't stop him being my friend. You know? Sometimes I even find it offensive what my friends say, but so what? You know, get over it. You know? <laughs> yeah, one or two more, okay. Anybody upstairs? Haven't had any? Yeah, in the front there. I guess I'll try. Um, as a writer of rather surrealistic fiction, what do you think of the right form of the more fantastical fiction, I guess perhaps most popularly expressed in the aforementioned James by J.J. Rowling? Huh. Another more serious fantastical fiction is also serious. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was much younger, when I was at college, I was very, very, very interested in and attracted to um, fantasy fiction, science fiction, fantasy fiction. And I read a lot of it. Um, not just uh, the kind of Lord of the Rings thing, but the kind of hardcore 
science fiction magazines. Um, and I, I came to know the bodies of work of writers with strange names, you know, L. Sprague de Camp, you know, A. E. Van Vogt, Frederick Paul and C. M. Cornbluth, Clifford D. Simak, etc., etc. I mean, these are you know these are legendary golden era science fiction writers, and you know I don't don't mean to diss them, um, just for having Salman Rushdie. You know, that's not exactly a simple name. Um, and I have always thought of science fiction at its best as being um, an extremely valuable and subtle vehicle for the exploration of ideas. I mean, at its very best, it is ideas fiction. Um, and that's true of the, you know, the best of Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury and, and all kinds of people. Um, there's a wonderful, I'll share with you, short story that Frederick, that, that uh, Vonnegut wrote in the, in the guise of his alter ego, Kilgore Trout. Um, and it's a story in which Kilgore Trout imag is, imagines that the last man in the world is being talked to by the, by the narrator of the story, who the narrator of the story, in fact, is God. And God is saying to the last man in the world, after the world has been destroyed, that many years ago, he conceived of an idea for an interesting experiment, which would be to, to set up a completely artificial environment in which everything was, in, was mechanical and, and, and controlled, and then introduce into it a single individual with free will in order to see what that individual made of that environment. And, and he says, well, actually, the, the, the world was that environment, and you are the individual, um, and everything else was a machine. And it doesn't seem to have worked out so well, and um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so so, so that the, the, the story is basically an apology on behalf of, from God to the human race, which is long overdue, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think you know, at its very best, science fiction is, is a wonderful vehicle for that kind of intellectual and philosophical wit. Um, the reason I, I kind of went off it, well, there were two reasons, really. One is that with a very, very few exceptions, most, most distinguished of which Doris Lessing just won the Nobel Prize and good for her, there are very, very few women who have either ever written good science fiction and there are actually almost no credible women characters in the whole of science fiction. They're all either super brainy people with clipboards or they're kind of people with fantastic breasts and, um, and they're, so they're either sex bombs or, or kind of neuter mathematicians. Um, and they aren't people, you know. So the absence of women was one thing. And again, with, this, with the distinguished exceptions of people like the writers I've mentioned, like Vonnegut and Bradbury and Philip Dick and others, most of science fiction is unbelievably badly written. I mean, the, the, at the level of the sentence, there is a, an agony which, 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 um, which I found myself no longer able to tolerate, you know, and, and, so, and so I stopped. So that's my relationship with it. But, it, you know, I'm, in, I'm for it in principle. It's just in practice, it often sucks. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
All right, one, one more question. One last question. Over here in the corner. Yeah. There we are. I don't know if I stand alone in this, but uh, I am sort of think when I think of this uh, war that we're engaged in and uh, the visions of photographs from Abu Ghraib, and I think of the potential that those images have to leave us as a civilization in jeopardy for, for many, many years. And you talk about how novels can help tell, tell the story. I'm wondering, in the face of the way we've behaved uh, and the way that our nation is in conflict, what the role of the novelist is and, and how it might act in, in this environment and what, what potential you see for perhaps healing or bridging the gaps that we've created here. I mean, well, I mean, it's a very serious question, and I wish, I wish I had a better answer than this, but the truth is that I'm not sure that a novel is an act of healing. You know, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's for anything, actually. You know, I think it's very, it's very important, I think, to, uh, to resist a, ut a utilitarian view of the novel, you know, that, that, it's, that it's there in order to achieve certain things socially. You know. I think it's just not. It might be. It might, there might, by chance, be a novel which which achieved certain effects of the kinds that, you know, I mean, no doubt are desirable effects. But I don't actually see how books can do this. I mean, what, I mean they may not be our books to write either. You know, it's a, I mean, the greatest novel of World War II was written by a writer from the defeated side. You know, let's say it was the, the Tin Drum by Gunter Grass. Um, and Grass has written very eloquently about the intellectual benefit of being on the beaten side, not on the winning side. Um, I mean, the best novels I've ever read about Vietnam were written by Vietnamese writers. Uh, it, so what I'm saying is that if you're talking about what's happening in Iraq right now, these may not be our books to write. Uh, I mean, we, may, we may get these books from some notional state in the future of Iraq where books can be written and published. Um, which right now seems, or from the diaspora, you know. Um, but I don't know what to say to you truthfully because I, I wish I could think of literature as being able to address the problem that you describe. I mean, it can address it in the sense that it can depict it. It can enter into the imaginative reality of it. Um, whether that helps, I don't know. I mean, I really, I don't know. Um, we have to wait and see. And these books can't be written to order. Sometimes books that deal with great historical tragedies uh, come much later. You know, War and Peace was written more than half a century after the events it describes. Um, you know, Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22, by the time it was published, there was a different war on. You know, it wasn't written about World War II, but became an iconic novel about Vietnam. Um, it's, it's not a form which very often is successful at making an instant response. 
know, historically, the novel is not particularly good at that. Journalism is better at that. You know, and I think that one of the things to take that we can genuinely look at with pride is the way in which journalists have, with great risk, reported this war and brought to light, in many cases, um, things which would not be known. I mean, no, there's never been a war in which so many journalists were killed as this one. It's, it's over 200 now. Um, over 200 right, uh, journalists and translators. Um, and yet, every day, there are journalists going outside the so-called safe zone in Baghdad with the Iraqi translators who are in more danger than them because they're Iraqi, um, and trying to bring the news. You know, I think that's, uh, at this moment, I think that's what there is to do. I don't see. I don't see the answer to your question. I mean, I think time will tell. I'm sorry not to be more positive, but I, I just don't see the answer. Anyway, thank you very. Sorry to end on that note, but thank you. Thank you.